Hello, and welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, episode 56b, Restoring Splendour. In this episode, we finish off the Hyksos War, and the attempts of King Armosa and Queen Ahotep to restore their kingdom's former glory. Their work is subjected to a variety of pressures, including rebellion, economic degradation, and even environmental disaster. Will they triumph? We'll find out. This episode is brought to you by Leanne Cohn. Thank you, Leanne, for helping to support the podcast. I hope you and all of my listeners enjoy the show. The year was now 1535 BCE, and after two centuries of division, Egypt was reunited once again. The Hyksos enemy had been defeated, and their capital was taken. The remnants were fleeing headlong into the Sinai Peninsula. King Armosa and his army were in hot pursuit. At home, the kingdom was awakening to the fact that unity had been restored, and that the war was mostly over. Further bloodshed would happen beyond the borders, in foreign countries, far away from daily life. The Egyptians could rest. Well, not really. But it would have been nice, wouldn't it? Two centuries of division ended, and the war now moving into its epilogue phase? Should have been a good time to kick back and enjoy the fruits of victory. Sadly, no such luck. Before King Armosa had even left the delta to pursue his enemies... Upper Egypt had been struck unexpectedly by a rebellion. A group of locals, possibly former vassals of the Hyksos, unsatisfied with the new situation, decided to throw off Amos's authority and establish their own polity. Well, this would never do. The country was so close to peace, these upstarts were going to ruin everything. Something had to be done, and done quickly. If the rebel leaders thought that they were going to get away with this, they had miscalculated very badly. Before they even knew what was happening, they were facing an Egyptian army. At the head of this army was none other than the Queen Mother. Ahotep was handling business in the south, and the matter of the rebellion fell within her jurisdiction. So as part of her duties, the Queen Regent took charge of the situation, and organised the Theban army to mobilise. If they thought that taking on a woman would be easy, they were swiftly disabused. The queen led a brief and bloody subjugation. She attacked the rebels, took their towns, and captured or executed their leaders. One of the Egyptians present in this fighting was a young man named Amos Ibana. We met Amos Ibana last episode, when he was part of the battle for Avaris. Well, somehow he wound up down in Upper Egypt, at the time Ahotep was dealing with the rebellion. Quote, there was fighting in Egypt to the south, and I carried off a man as a living captive. I went down into the water, for he was captured on the city side, and crossed the water carrying him. When it was reported to the royal herald, I was rewarded with gold. End quote. Classic Amosibana, already a veteran of the Hyksos War, he swiftly proved his worth by capturing a foe and successfully bringing him back to camp over a long distance. For his valour, he was decorated with gold, specifically the golden medallions with which 17th dynasty kings rewarded their troops. We'll get back to these medallions in a second, just remember that they're important. 
The war in Upper Egypt was short and decisive. Ahotep crushed the rebellion with one swift stroke, and the Theban kingdom was saved. Quite an achievement for a queen now getting on in years. She was in her forties at least, and her victory would inspire her descendants to even greater feats. King Amosa ordered that her achievements be immortalized. Quote, she is the one who has accomplished the rites and taken care of Egypt. She has looked after her soldiers. She has guarded her. She has brought back her fugitives and collected together her deserters. And she has pacified Upper Egypt and expelled her rebels. End quote. When her tomb was discovered and excavated, the queen was found buried with a variety of beautiful objects. Some of these were weapons of war, like daggers sheathed in gold and battle axes gilded and decorated with images of victory. My personal favourite is Ahotep's dagger, a beautiful weapon of bronze fitted with a golden brace and a hilt of silver. The hilt is the best part, because it is clearly in the shape of the moon, which was Ahotep's personal symbol and namesake. See, the Ah part of Ahotep comes from the Egyptian Ya, meaning the moon. So this moon-named lady went to her grave armed with a moon-decorated weapon. And I just think that's wonderful. I know I've said it before, but the Queen Mother deserves our highest respect for her resilience and endurance in the time she lived. She could have lived a quiet life, like many royal wives before her. But in a time of crisis and upheaval, she stepped forward to govern Thebes and shape its destiny. She had endured personal loss in the form of her husband and eldest son. She had suffered political setbacks and endured year after year of administrative burden and never-ending warfare. But she had emerged on the other side, powerful, active, and victorious. Seriously, I cannot represent this queen enough. She is awesome. All of those honours and adulations were piled up in the queen's tomb at Thebes, and they spoke of her skill as a ruler. But the crowning relic of Queen Ahotep is not a dagger or an axe. It is not a mirror or a fan, or any of those personal possessions. The crowning achievement is a simple necklace, made in gold, bearing three small medallions. These medallions are gold, and shaped into the form of three flies. What are these flies? Well, we call them the Golden Flies, but they're part of a larger category of military awards called the Gold of Valor. The Gold of Valor was the highest category of military honour in Egyptian society. It was awarded to victorious warriors like Amosibana and to successful commanders like Ahotep. It symbolised skill in combat and success in war, both of which were rewarded by the king. The gold of honour seems to have come in many different forms. Necklaces, amulets, collars, and pendants. The golden flies were simply one among many different types, but one of the more notable. So their appearance in Ahotep's tomb is a testament to her influence, to her power, and to her status in her society. Given this influence, I think Ahotep probably awarded the gold of valour to herself, rather than waiting for her son to do it. Sure, Amos commissioned the actual objects and performed the ceremony of awarding, but the idea? Yeah, that was probably Ahotep's. And frankly, I can't blame her. The Queen Mother had achieved a lot in her years, 
far more than anyone else of her day could claim. So, why not take such an honour? If you can think of a reason, and you'd be brave enough to tell this particular ruler no, then I'd love to hear about it. Ahotep's victory was a great one, and she was now every inch the classic Egyptian ruler. Her victory secured the South, and it freed the royal household to think about the organisation of the country, and the ongoing Hyksos war. So, back to the big picture. The rebellion in Upper Egypt was crushed, Ahotep was victorious, and King Amosa could breathe easy. His kingdom was safe, and in the capable hands of his mother. He was free to leave, in order to pursue his enemy. Now, it was time to finish the Hyksos, once and for all. In the second half of 1535, the Egyptian army left the delta and entered the Sinai Peninsula. Delays getting the expedition underway meant that the Hyksos enemy had a good head start. On top of that, they were retreating into familiar, friendly territory. They could count on safe havens and on allies. This made things far more dangerous for the Egyptians. Caution was priority number one. King Amosa understood this danger, and he planned accordingly. As the army advanced into the desert, they were shadowed at sea by a large navy. Specifically, the elite Egyptian Royal Navy, now veterans of 20 years at war, and probably one of the best in the Mediterranean. They were the defensive arm of the Egyptian army, and the soldiers could be confident of safety as long as that navy was at hand. Among the sailors of this navy was none other than Amos Ibana, now returned to the king's service after the rebellion. A decorated hero, he was now at the rank of ship commander, leading his comrades from the prow of the ship rising in Memphis. He was known to the king, and could count himself among the most prominent military men in the land. And now he was in the Royal Navy, adventuring beyond the borders, on the sort of expedition for which great kings of the past were famous. This would have been exhilarating, I'm sure, but Amos Ibana was probably nervous as well. Going outside of Egypt was a big deal, and it never quite sat well with the ancients. There were too many superstitions, too many fears of dying away from the homeland. For warriors and sailors, this must have been a very real fear. So Amos Ibana was probably a bit uneasy about the whole situation. And he had good reason to be. For one thing, the enemy were now back in safe lands, and they were preparing for the Egyptians' arrival. King Amosa and his army found the Hyksos stronghold quickly. The enemy was holed up in a valley in southern Canaan, at a fortress called Sharuhen. Sharuhen is located about 15 kilometres from modern-day Gaza. For the Hexos, Sharuhen was an ideal location, a fertile valley with good access to water and a large rocky outcropping for defence. This was a potentially dangerous situation. The Hexos had a strong defensive position and could potentially hold out against the Egyptians. If this happened, the effects could be disastrous. With a Hexos stronghold in Canaan, the enemy could potentially regroup, reorganise and resupply. In time, they might be able to raise reinforcements and threaten Egypt once again. For the Egyptians, this was an unavoidable challenge. 
they had to take the fortress in order to finally end the Hexos threat. Only problem was, the fortress was quite strong, and it would not be easy to take. Armosa and his army approached Sharuhin in late 1535 BCE. They were greeted with an unpleasant sight. The Hyksos were well entrenched in their fortress. Getting them out was going to be a challenge. The Egyptians had all the necessary equipment, but cracking this nut was going to cost lives, and caution was necessary. The initial assaults failed. The fortress was too well defended. So the Egyptians settled down, and prepared to starve it out. There was just one problem with this strategy. The Egyptians were now in hostile territory, and potentially surrounded by enemies. The Hyksos, you see, had been friendly with Canaanite towns for as long as they had been in Egypt. They seemed to have had allies here, and they had lines of communication with groups like Babylon, far away but still very powerful. If there was ever a time to call in those friends and seek their help, now was the time to do it. This put the Egyptians in a difficult position. They needed a way to even the odds and conduct their siege in peace. But how could this be achieved? King Amos's solution was simple. The Egyptians would isolate Sharuhin and cut it off from any hope of relief. They would block reinforcements or supply and prevent any aid from the outside. This was a strategy that had worked at Avaris the year before, so theoretically it should work now. Amos divided his army into two. One half, the half in which Amosibana was now serving, would remain at Sharuhin, guarding it and attempting to break in. The other half would go north into Canaan and reassert Egyptian authority in a land that had not seen them for 200 years. This army would visit new communities, establish connections, and remind the locals of who the Egyptians and their ruler really were. In other words, Amosa was going to crack some heads. Okay, maybe I'm exaggerating a little, but you get the idea. Amosa and his forces were going to make connections with towns that Egypt hadn't been connected to for a long time. Ideally, that would be peaceful, and the locals would acknowledge Egyptian superiority. But there were always going to be a few holdouts, the sort of people who didn't see why this newcomer was anybody worth obeying. If that was the case, well that was what the army was for. The king and his army advanced northward into the land which is now central and northern Israel. He and his soldiers began to raid towns and villages and compel them to submit. He subjugated those who resisted and occasionally put the smackdown on some troublesome elements. In a bigger sense, the political message of this campaign was clear. Egypt was back and the king of Egypt was not to be messed with. But the campaign itself was relatively minor. Amosa wasn't looking to carve out an empire, and he wasn't in a position to stay here for too long. The true goal, after all, was to isolate Sharuhin. Anything else was simply a bonus. Sharuhin held out much longer than Avaris had done. The Hyksos capital had fallen in a matter of weeks or months, but this Canaanite fortress was going to last for three years. Month after month, season after season, it repelled any attempts at destruction, and small skirmishes did nothing to break the stalemate. Hardly an ideal campaign, but the Egyptians could afford to wait. Even if they had to starve the enemy out, 
what was the rush? This was the last bastion, and since the king was stomping up and down Israel, the Hyksos could not hope for reinforcements, or relief. All of this put the dice squarely in Egypt's hands. Amozi Bana and his comrades simply had to wait, and wait they did. It all paid off when around 1532 the Egyptian army broke in. Whether the Hyksos surrendered or were breached is unclear, but Amozi Bana and his fellow soldiers entered Sharuhin in 1532. The entire population was enslaved, their wealth was plundered, and the fortress was razed to the ground. I can only imagine the violence that was done here on this day. All the pent-up frustration of four or five generations was being vented at one time, so the wrath of the Egyptians must have been terrible. Amozibana was there, and he describes it as a despoiling, which is probably a euphemism for steal everything, kill everyone who fights, and enslave the rest. When the dust settled on this carnage, the Hyksos threat was done, finished, gone forevermore. Victory, it seems, was achieved. So what now? The fall of the Hyksos in 1533 or 1532 was the end of an era, as far as we're concerned. 1532 marks the end of the Second Intermediate Period, the fifth chapter in Egyptian history. We must try not to forget this period, because the impact of the Hyksos occupation was profound. It was going to reverberate through Egyptian royal society for another century at least, and propel the kings and queens of the country to ever greater heights of conquest, bloodshed, and exploitation. Some good things as well, but mostly violent ones. The army returned home in 1532 BCE, more than three years after they had embarked on their expedition. King Amosa was now 33 years old, and had been on the throne for 23 years. Most of those years had been spent at war, and planning his great victory. Well, now the Egyptians could look forward to peace, and they could get back to the work of restoring their kingdom, which had suffered after so many years of degradation. Two centuries of economic uncertainty, combined with warfare up and down the Nile Valley, does not come cheaply. So Egypt was not in its best state, and for Amosa and Ahotep, this was a bit of a challenge. See, they still had to fulfil all the traditional responsibilities of the crown. Responsibilities like embellishing and building temples, sending out expeditions, and funding the various institutions which depended on their wealth. Well, that wealth was in a bit of a short supply at the moment, so what could they do? This is where things get, in my opinion, kind of awesome. Amos and Ahotep had a variety of projects underway to bring the crown more wealth. We have already experienced one of them without realising it. When Amosa went to Canaan and waged his short campaign, he was not just reasserting Egyptian military reputations. He was reconnecting with towns that had once been trading partners for his ancestors, and he was taking plunder from those that refused. In other words, he was, how shall we say, acquiring some external funding. This wasn't an immediate fix to the problem, of course, but it was the start of a long-term relationship between Egypt and Canaan. Trade could now come down to Thebes instead of stopping at Avaris. The royal household could become richer, and that wealth could be redistributed to those who served its interests. 
Thebes was going to be embellished for the glory of all, but especially the glory of the god. We've spent the last few episodes talking exclusively about the achievement of Theban humans. But to the Thebans themselves, a lot of these achievements were at least partly sponsored, and even made possible, by the divine. The gods of Thebes, Amun-Re, Montu, Mut, Khonsu, etc., had propped the kingdom up in its darkest moments, and finally given it the victory that it had desired for so long. But these gods had the power to cause trouble as well. If they were not properly worshipped, or were unsatisfied with their offerings, there could be problems. In particular, the power of Amun-Re, king of the gods, was something to fear. This had been hammered home, rather bluntly, sometime in Amos's second decade on the throne. Let's say 1540, approximately. Around this time, Thebes was struck with a calamity, one that the locals attributed to the power and wrath of the great god. So, what happened? Well, the story began when King Amosa was away from Thebes. He was either on campaign or dealing with administrative matters in another part of the country. It isn't clear. For whatever reason, he had been away from his city for a long time, possibly even years. Eventually, he came home, only to encounter a disaster. Quote, Then the gods caused that the sky come in a tempest of rain, with darkness like that of the underworld. The sky was in storm without end, louder than the voices of the masses. End quote. It seems that Amosa did something, or didn't do something, and that his action or inaction caused extreme displeasure among certain gods. These gods then vented their anger upon Thebes, and a mighty storm broke over the city. Now, you might not think of rain as being that big of a deal. Surely the Egyptians who lived in a desert country would have been happy about it, right? Well, no, not really. See, in some desert areas, particularly rocky ones, the soil can become so dry that it hardens. Over time, it becomes a hard-baked clay that is almost impervious to water. So when there is a sudden rainfall, the water does not soak into the ground. It quickly gathers and forms a torrent. A torrent becomes a flash flood, and a flash flood becomes deadly. Quote, then every house, every quarter that the storm and rain reached was afflicted. Corpses were floating on the water like papyrus, just outside the palace audience chamber for a period of days, and no torch could be lit in the two lands. End quote. Now this was a catastrophe. Buildings were destroyed, households were ruined, and people were dying at an alarming rate. Their bodies washed into the torrents of water and wound up in the river. The sky went dark like nothing the Egyptians had ever witnessed. This was no eclipse, and it went far beyond the average storm. Western Thebes was totally flooded, and communities were utterly destroyed. Then, Amosa received word that a major catastrophe had also happened to the royal tombs. Quote, then his majesty was informed that the mortuary spaces had been entered, the tomb chambers had collapsed, the funerary mansions were undermined, and the pyramids had fallen. They had been made non-existent. End quote. Exaggeration aside, I don't think the pyramids have ever fallen, 
the country was clearly in a dire situation. The tombs of Amos's ancestors were ruined and broken, and his subjects were suffering on an unprecedented scale. The storm was raging across the country, and Egypt was effectively under attack from the divine. How the hell did this happen? This was no ordinary rainstorm, says Chicago Egyptologist Robert K. Rittner. The number of days which is lost could have been as many as 29, depending on how one reconstructs the text. So it was a ridiculously long phenomenon. The locals must have been terrified. But what caused it? Well, there's one answer that might work. In the same article that I'm quoting from, and which you can find for free at EgyptianHistoryPodcast.com, Robert Rittner and his colleague, Associate Professor Nadine Moella, argue in favour of an idea that was first proposed late in the 1980s. This idea suggests that the great storm which afflicted the two lands was not an isolated event, but the result of an event that occurred nearly 3,000 kilometres away. Sometime in the 16th century, maybe earlier, maybe later, a volcano in the Aegean Sea, between Greece and Turkey, blew its top. This volcanic eruption is called the Thera eruption, and it was huge. It's hard to compare volcanic eruptions in terms that humans can actually visualize, but it might be enough to say that the Thera eruption was the fourth largest eruption in human history. It utterly devastated the island on which it occurred, the island of Santorini, and it caused a tidal wave that smashed the coast of Crete. It destroyed numerous settlements, and caused a thin layer of ash to fall across Turkey, northern Egypt, and the Near East. There is even evidence that the eruption might have caused crop failures in China, and affected Sweden, California, Ireland, England, and Germany. So, quite an impactful occurrence. For the Egyptians, the eruption at Thera would certainly have been a dramatic event. The sound of the explosion alone would have reverberated in the sky, and the sky would then have rapidly gone red. If the wind was right, smoke and ash would have been blown across the Near East, darkening the land and disrupting weather patterns. So we're dealing with a pretty ominous occurrence. The Thebans would have been stunned. They had dealt with eclipses and things of that nature, but a total darkening of the sky for an extended period of time, possibly days, would have seemed like the worst possible anger of the god. That sounds an awful lot like what Amos's texts describe, but believe it or not, there's no certainty. I mean, it seems like an open and shut case, right? The two match up pretty well. And a large volcanic eruption might have caused enough disruption that heavy storms came over Egypt, with all the torrential rain described. But there's one teensy-weensy, ever-so-tiny, but majorly important detail. The date. All of the radiocarbon dating and historical chronology still cannot quite nail down the date of the Thera eruption and the Armosa Stela. They might be the same occurrence, or they might be 70 years or so apart. What do we do? Well, we do nothing. We leave it up to the researchers to come to some consensus. All I'll say is that Rittner and Moella have a solid argument, and the two events do sound very similar. For the sake of our story, I'm going to trust the experts and say that the Theban catastrophe, the wrath of Amun-Re, was none other than the immense volcanic eruption, 
the likes of which had never been seen before. The crisis was huge. People were dying, towns were vanishing, and the sacred tombs themselves were being damaged. So what could Armosa do? Well, first things first, he had to placate the gods. Quote, Then his majesty said, How much greater this is than the wrath of the great god, even the plans of the gods. His majesty then descended to his boat, with his council following him, while the crowds on the east and west had no clothing after the wrath of the god. His majesty came to the temple of Karnak, and with gold he faced the divine image, so that the god had what he received. End quote. Well, that's one way of solving the issue. God terrorizing your land? Buy him off. If in doubt, send more and more until the problem is resolved. It seems cynical, but it worked. The storm eventually began to abate, and the darkness lifted. Thebes emerged into the light, to a scene of devastation. On top of the physical damage, there was a great deal of psychological fallout to deal with. For one thing, the Thebans were understandably horrified that their god had unexpectedly turned on them. Sure, they had placated him eventually, but they were in no hurry to suffer his wrath again. Such chaos was an affront to the power of the king, it was ruinous to the splendour of Thebes, and it was horrible for those who were faithful worshippers of the Pantheon. With that in mind, Amosa began to devote some serious resources to the religious cults of the city. Quote, then his majesty began to re-establish the two lands, to give guidance for the flooded territories. He did not fail in providing these temples with silver, with gold, with copper, with oil and cloth, comprising every bolt that could be desired. Then his majesty commanded to restore the temples that had fallen into ruin, to refurbish the monuments of the gods, to hide the sacred spaces once again, to restore the sacred images to their places, and to put the land into its former state. This was done in accordance with all that his majesty had commanded. End quote. The Theban royalty had to act quickly to deal with the crisis. After all, when the storm hit them, they were still at war with the Hyksos. Any catastrophe at home could have spiralled into catastrophe in the war, so they had to deal with it now. So the crown poured its wealth into the temples of Egypt. Gold, incense, luxury objects, and all kinds of offerings were sent to temples, where the priests could offer them on behalf of the king. More offerings meant more worship. More worship might placate the gods and prevent a repeat occurrence. Offerings poured into the sanctuaries, and wealth taken from those foreign enemies was used to enrich and embellish the great temples. All in all, it was a very good time to be a god. Naturally, a huge portion of this wealth went to one god in particular, Amun-Re, the Theban king of creation. Amun-Re, a combination of the Hidden One with the solar god Re, was the principal deity of Thebes. He had been a patron of the city for uncounted generations, and was part of the Twelfth Dynasty's royal identity. There were, for instance, four kings named Amenemhat, or Amun is at the forefront, each of them venerating the god in their own way. They had made contributions to the god's house at Karnak, and worshipped him before all others. Well, now was Amun-Re's time to shine, 
and Amosa was putting serious resources at the temple's disposal. He granted lands, established regular offerings, and improved the shrines themselves. Put together, it amounted to a big effort to honour the god. Now, before we go thinking that Amosa was bankrupting the royal treasury just to honour a god, we should remember that in Egyptian society there really was no division between the state and the temple. They were connected symbiotically and depended on one another. Kings were priests, and priests depended on the royal household for their livelihoods. So, when Amosa enriched the temples, he was also enriching the state. He was putting resources into a sort of divine trust, a trust that only he could access. If it happened to honour the god as well, well, that was a win-win. But how would this pay off? In time, Amun-Re would become the premier god of all Egypt. As a result, his priesthood would become the most powerful in the country. Soon, they would begin to exercise some serious influence on the royal household. As you can imagine, that sometimes had its downfalls. There was at least one royal rebellion against the situation, and in time, there would even be civil wars over the issue. Anyway, it's time to come at last to the closing years of Amos's life. It's been a long ride, in just two episodes. The king spent nearly 20 years preparing for, and then achieving, the expulsion of the Hyksos, and the destruction of their last stronghold. By the time it was all over, in 1532 BCE, the king had just two years left to live. Not that he knew that. Still, he must have known it was time to start grooming his successor. So without further ado, let me introduce the eldest son of Amosa, the prince of Egypt, Saper. Saper, full name Amos Saper, was five or six years old, just a little in. But he was quickly raised to extreme prominence, as the king ordered craftsmen to add his image to temples, and to create statues of the prince. One of these statues is an absolutely beautiful rendition, and I have placed it on the Facebook page, on our Twitter, and on the podcast website. I encourage you to go look at it. The creation of such images was not common. Normally, princes of Egypt are completely invisible, and we only know about them from small references on documents or stelae. It seems that Amosa was pushing his son to the forefront quickly. Perhaps he knew that he was not long for this world, or perhaps he was eager to solidify his rule over the reunited Egypt. This could be achieved partly by presenting the people with their future king as soon as possible. Unfortunately, Saper died not long after his promotion. It was a sad day for the king and queen. He was buried in a tiny coffin in a tomb later used for Ahotep. You can see this coffin on our website. It is a sad little image. The mummy of Sapir still has all of his baby teeth, and his coffin is a cute little thing with a large wig that seems far too big for the actual size. The light now passed to Amos's second eldest son with Amos and Nefertari, a young prince named Amun-Hotep. Amun-Hotep, or Amun is satisfied, was about four or five when his elder brother unexpectedly passed away. Suddenly, the young one was in the limelight, an heir to the king of Upper and Lower Egypt. What's more, he was linked, by name, with the priesthood and power of the greatest god in Thebes. 
Would this affect his reign? Well, we'll just have to wait and see. King Armosa died in regnal year 25, around 1530 BCE. He was 35 years old and had lived a very distinguished life. Armosa could pride himself on achieving something done by only two others before him. He had unified Egypt under a single ruler. In effect, he was a new founding father for a new kingdom. While he had spent much of his life in the shadow of his mother, Armosa was a distinguished and capable ruler. He had weathered storms, literally, and survived wars. He had expanded the kingdom and expelled a hated enemy. He had venerated and obeyed Amun like none before him, and witnessed some of Thebes' darkest days. But he had emerged triumphant. For our part, Armos's reign is a landmark in the political, economic, religious, and military history of the country. So much happened in this period, I wish I could tell you about it all. This episode marks the official end of the Second Intermediate Period, and the beginning of the New Kingdom. Dynasty 17 is now over, and Dynasty 18 has begun. The Egyptians of this period are embarking on a fascinating journey. Next time, we take the first steps, as Ahhotep, Amos Nefertari, and the child king Amunhotep I begin the New Kingdom. See you soon. Thank you.